Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, long-suffering, and of great goodness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We really like getting recognition for things that we have done and said. Think of how many award shows flood the television. No longer is it the Emmys, Grammys, Tonys, and Oscars. There are annually no less than 22 award shows on American television. There are some more distinguished awards, American and on the international scene out there. The Pulitzer Prizes in America, the Nobel Prizes on the international scene. We like to see people awarded for their accomplishments, and when one earns some recognition, it ought to be acknowledged. Although, we tend to like the recognition, and in a good number of cases, we might like it too much. Those of us going about our day-to-day business do not get adoration and honors broadcast around the world. Nonetheless, we still desire recognition for what we personally consider meritorious works. We like getting the acknowledgement of our work symbolically in the paycheck. Even though we've already earned the money, there is still a sense of reward and recognition even though we've already earned the pay. We look forward to raises in the salary because when we receive the raise, it spells advance. It tells us internally that in some way we're moving up. The raise in the salary means someone recognizes and appreciates what we've done. The awards may not be seen by many, but we like them, and we need them. We long to know where we stand especially in relation relation to someone else's position or status. We desire merit. This part of our character, the need for recognition of our accomplishments, may be part of the reason why so many of us are at least annoyed and even repulsed by the parable of the householder. The end of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard does not sit well with us. The story has the laborers working for one hour and getting paid the same as the laborers working 12 hours while having borne the burden of the day's heat. The story goes right against our natural leaning and preference for how we are to be rewarded. In the parable, everyone is paid the same no matter how many hours one is worked. Here's the lament from the workers. And on receiving the denarius, the laborers grumbled at the householder, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Everyone gets a day's wages, 
And in this case, the day's wages is a denarius. And now, a good wage is a denarius for even one day's work. Yet, those working only the last hour of the day also received a denarius. Can you imagine if the labor unions ever got wind that the workers were being paid that unfairly? The inequity and the injustice in the pay distribution does nothing but perturb the laborers, and when we hear about it, it disturbs us. The inequality and unfairness need to be addressed, which is about what I'm going to do. This parable demands some dissecting. The dissection of the parables in the Bible is more than it's more described as a kind of mining for a gem. The parables usually have one main point, one teaching that our Lord is trying to illustrate. And mining, I think, describes it better. We're digging for that lesson. More accurately describes our approach to the parables rather than dissection. The parables, I think, and there are about 22 of them through the Gospels, are not allegories in the sense that every element in an allegory does have a meaning and ought to be found out. Parables are allegorical, but they're not allegories. There's more of an enlightening teaching, a lesson that we're supposed to learn from the parable. We need to find the theme or the lesson. Hence, mining for the lesson. Well, let's begin by setting out that the principle in this parable is all about how God bestows his grace on those wanting to be in his kingdom, and he bestows that grace without any regard of merit. To get to the principle of loving God's loving grace bestowed on all, no matter who we are, it will be helpful to remember three things. This is my little mnemonic device for remembering him, and it's the best I could come up with. I came up with three words that all begin with G. God, garden, and grace. In our parable, God is the householder. The garden, or the vineyard, is Israel. God's grace is the denarius. Given that, look how good God is. He is, in fact, all goodness. He is so generous. He's willing to give a whole day's wages to everyone, no matter who they are or what they've done. That is generosity. If one is part of the vineyard, we are calling it the garden, then God will shed his grace, the denarius, on all who do it, and he'll do it abundantly. To get to that teaching, the point is we must set aside merit. Forget it. Let everyone with a desire to go to work in the vineyard and accept God's freely and abundantly given grace. The other necessity is to realize that our parable is not about life in the kingdom of God. It's not. 
It's about how God treats the people who want to come into his kingdom. How does he treat them? It's not about what the laborers, how much the laborers work. It's about how God loves the laborers who want to be part and be with him. Grace, by this loving God, freely given and accepted, leads to our salvation. So it's important. There's no amount of work or effort or time that we can put in to merit that salvation. In a certain way, it's already been done. We are saved by grace through faith. And we know that St. Paul spent a good part of his ministry trying to get that teaching across to the church. And he did. Because when St. Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he says, For by grace you are saved, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. And then in his letter to the Romans, St. Paul says that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. That is Jesus Christ. And then he continues, designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. It is only Jesus Christ's work on the cross and by his resurrection that we are saved. The grace is shed on those desiring to be part of his kingdom and kingdom equally, no matter the length, the quality, or the attitude of the work. So what about our works in the kingdom? We cannot gain any favor with God who loves us by doing works. We just heard that from St. Paul. We cannot do anything to grow closer to him. Well, wait a minute. You mean all those times I volunteered at the church, handing out food at the community dinner? All those coffee hours where I poured tea and coffee and baked those delectable goodies? All those communions that I've received my whole life? All those meals that I made for my sick family members and friends? They count for nothing? They count for nothing if the intent was to change your standing with God and his goodness in the kingdom. We have to remember that it is God who is the only one who is good. And it is only he, by shedding his grace and us accepting it on faith, that will make us good. In just the previous chapter of Matthew's gospel, we're in chapter 20, Go back to chapter 19, and we find that the rich young ruler had this same problem, but he had to be straightened out by Jesus himself. And behold, one came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? One there is who is good. 
Our works then are and must be responses to the saving love of God that God gives us. We have genuine good works out of thankfulness for the life and the love that God so generally has generously already given us. God's grace accepted by us, who do not deserve it by any merit, will produce true and genuine works. How do we tell that the works that we do are actually genuine and good? How do we know that the great self-giving love of God is flowing through us and producing good works? Because it does happen. I think one of the ways to determine if God's grace is working for you to produce good works is to set in front of you the Ten Commandments. Compare the wording of the Ten Commandments with your actions. Remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. Am I given to prayer and worship? Well, if I am, if you are, then it's probably the grace of God working in you that allowed you to do that. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Are your dealings with people honest and fair? That is probably the grace of God working through you. Thou shalt have none other gods but me. Is your top priority placing God first in your life? If he is first in your life, then it's probably by the grace that he gives you that's allowed you to be in that relation with him. Those, I think, are genuine good works. Our parable places our merits off the table. That makes us think, that there, that always only makes us think that there is unfairness in God's kingdom. And it makes us wonder what God is trying to teach us. It's actually a wonderful description of God's generosity, God's caring, and his sharing of grace. Again, the parable is not about what life is like in the kingdom of God. It is about how God treats those who want to be part of his kingdom. It's not about how long the laborers work. It's about how God loves the laborers. Are you trying to be part of his kingdom? If you're not, you should. You can be led to genuine good works because he loves you too. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.